All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Neuroflex podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with us today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Roger McIntyre. Dr. McIntyre is the Chairman and Chief Executive Officer at Braxia Scientific, and he is the world's top-ranked depression researcher and has almost 25 years of providing care and conducting research, along with drug discovery and development for persons with depression and related disorders. He is currently also a professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at the University of Toronto and head of the Mood Disorders Psychopharmacology Unit at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada. So Dr. McIntyre, welcome to the show. Toby, great to be with you. Definitely so. So tell me a little about kind of your your path in terms of, you know, becoming, uh, you know, one of the biggest names in, in terms of the depression research field. What originally spurred your interest in that, that line of work? Yeah, I appreciate the question, Toby. And for me, it's it's certainly very near to me how I became involved in this area. It wasn't planned. Uh, if we had this conversation at an earlier stage of my life, I would tell you I would never have thought I'd be doing this. I uh, had the opportunity, in fact, the privilege, a surreal privilege, has changed my life late in the stages of my medical training where I thought I was going to become a neurosurgeon uh, to meet uh, a person who uh, had a mood disorder. I met them in a clinical context that is, you know, through my training. And, um, you know, I've often told the story, I mean, it just changed my life in terms of my intrigue with the condition, the impact from a scientific perspective, the impact on humanity. Here I am. And for the last uh, number of years, I've really been uh, very passionately involved in trying to figure out causes and cures for people who have mood disorders. And uh, that's taken me down several paths. And uh, the path that we're in right now is a path that I can say is incredibly um, surreal, exciting. Uh, it's just, it's wonderful because we can use the words innovation and the word psychiatry in the same sentence. And above all else, that gives hope. And so it's been an incredible journey. And um, the privilege has entirely been given to me by people who live with these conditions. And uh, we're doing the best we can to really, really change the game for them. And from your perspective as as a researcher, like when when someone comes to you and just kind of asks, you know, what 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 is depression? What you know, from from kind of like your perspective, how would you sort of uh, define the different components and maybe talk yeah. about some of the the causes of what we you know know um, related to depression and other mood disorders? Yeah, it's a great uh, uh, question. That one would think we have a simple answer to. Um, what I would say is we have a prevailing understanding and the prevailing understanding is, is that depression is a brain-based disorder. It's a problem with, with the rhythm of the brain. Now we usually talk about the rhythm of the heart. Most people would know what heart arrhythmias are. You got a beat to beat problem in your heart, palpitations, things like that. Depression is a problem with the rhythm of the brain. In other words, the brain is comprised of intricate circuits and networks, no different than the PC you have at home, the motherboard. And it's a very delicate interplay between and across these networks and circuits. And although it appears complicated, it is, there is in fact an incredible engineering to this. And these circuits are comprised of brain cells. And we know that in depression, the rhythm of these circuits and networks is off because of a problem at the cellular and the molecular level. And what we now know based on neuroscientific work, uh, ways that we can explore the brain in real living people, ways we couldn't do 10, 20 years ago, is that the treatments that we're offering are able to reset the circuits. And so that's not just an academic observation. That's a very important lighthouse in a very foggy, foggy landscape in the sense that it provides for us a line of sight. So as we're developing new molecules, new treatments, what we call new chemical entities, NCEs, which is code for new drugs uh, in depression, we start with, does this drug ca uh, capably, reliably, meaningfully reset those circuits? And if it does so, that's the first checkbox that this could be a potential asset to help people who live with a brain circuit problem 
called depression. How do people end up with these brain circuit problems? Well, we break it down into two broad categories. There is no doubt that there is a genetic contribution to depression. People often ask me, well, what's the overall genetic contribution? Well, best estimates are uh, from genetic work, and this is extrapolated from studies done in families or identical twins, fraternal twins, et cetera. That's about 30%. So with 30% of the risk is not 100%, it's not 0%. And the remainder is a complex interaction with the environment. And that complex interaction with the environment is so difficult to measure, quantifiable, in a quantifiable way, but what's consistent is, is that uh, many, but not all, people who have depression will report either severe stressors at a very critical time in life, for example, in childhood or adolescence, and or they'll have chronic stressors at sort of the bumps and bruises of life. They just kind of get them down. I see a lot of people, I've met tens of thousands of people in my life now, professionally, who have depression. And they'll say to me, they'll say, Professor McIntyre, um, I don't know why I'm depressed. I, I have a leave it, you know, leave it, you know sort of beaver lifestyles, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, my perfect life. How come I'm depressed? And as they say, well, you don't need to have a reason to be depressed. It just could be the way it is. It's just the way these things are. But so not everyone has an identifiable stressor, but many people do, most do. And what we now believe is, is that because the stress is either chronic and that stress is enduring or the stress was so severe at a critical period of time, it causes a jolt, if you will, to the circuit connectivity, igniting this rhythm disturbance in your brain. And then that manifests with the symptoms. So the rhythm of the brain is off. If your rhythm of your heart is off, you get palpitations and chest pain and shortness of breath. When the rhythm of your brain is off, your mood goes down, you lack motivation, you have no interest, your cognition's foggy, can't sleep at night, and you start to feel really bad, negative about yourself, you're ruminating, you have thoughts of suicide. That all maps onto these circuits. And I was listening or watching uh, one of the presentations, a presentation that you gave, and I stumbled across something that I thought was super, super interesting that you you presented the uh, the results of a study looking at um, basically people's response to uh, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and childhood trauma. And the, the finding in the research study was that people without childhood trauma had way higher response, uh, response rates, way higher efficacy in treating their depression versus people who had endured a lot of childhood trauma. Can you just kind of, uh, you know, touch a bit more on and expand on that? Be happy to. And what you're speaking to is something that really is topical now. Um, most people who are listening in would be aware of the fact that if you had, let's say, pneumonia and you're coughing up some sputum, um, the healthcare team you see would want to better understand what's the bug causing that pneumonia. And that's not just an academic curiosity. They, they want to know what the bug is because that's going to influence what antibiotic they're going to give you. And in the world of medicine, that type of process is a much more precise way to define the disease. It informs the treatment in a way that is, again, more precise. And what really emanates from that whole concept is that there is a very specific disease state. And that disease state uh, is unique. That disease state will have its own characteristics and its own potential treatment. We now know that depression is not a single disorder. There's probably thousands and thousands and thousands of presentations of depression that we just call one umbrella word called depression. But it's, it's a more complex syndrome or group of disorders. And what's interesting is that if people have a history of childhood maltreatment in the form of abuse, physical, sexual, or emotional, or there's neglect from the point of view of physical, or emotional needs, that changes the brain, that changes the body, it creates what we call a biophenotype difference. All that means is, is that when we look at the blood of people who have been exposed to trauma, their blood exhibits evidence of stress. And that can manifest in the lab as, say, inflammation. So the inflammatory system gets triggered, as an example. 
The other part is, is that people who have a history of trauma, what will happen is they will experience and then report to their care team symptoms that overlap with people who have not been traumatized, but certainly is more common. People feel very blunted. They feel very detached and disconnected and very brain fogged. And what we've discovered is, is that that historical event or historical events at critical periods has created a different type of depression that doesn't seem to cooperate with conventional SSRI treatment. And that indirectly supports the idea that this is a different entity altogether. And it also then supports the related but separate notion that maybe there's different pathways forward. For example, ketamine, which is a um, agent that we use now for rapid, robust improvement of depressive symptoms, it has been shown to be highly effective in people who have a history of trauma. And there's a few other treatments that are related that we're finding good success with like S-ketamine. And then more recently within this broad tent called psychedelic treatments, we're learning that treatments like, for example, psilocybin, maybe also methylene dioxymethamphetamine, otherwise known as ecstasy could also be helpful here. Um, and these are very, very different drugs altogether. So it doesn't mean that it's a fate accompli that we cannot help you. It just means that we're now in a time in psychiatry where two related phenomena are happening. One is we're moving towards what's called more precision medicine. In other words, trying to parse different subgroups of people defined by their illness, their history, and the biology. And secondly, we now have treatments that are uniquely effective insofar as they work rapidly, robustly, and importantly, help people wherein their illness has not hitherto been as cooperative with the conventional treatments. So it really is a different, it's a different ball game altogether. And I think that the bottom line is this is a hopeful avenue. And I can tell you for seeing tens and tens and tens of thousands of people, 40 to 70%, 4.0 to 7.0% of people that we see have a history of trauma. So we're not talking about a small subgroup of people. This is a lot of people who have really sort of, you know, languished along and haven't done as well as they would like and we would like. So it's very helpful for the field. And you mentioned there um, the, the role of, of inflammation and depression. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, with, with long COVID, I know you guys are, yeah. or you're part of uh, a study um, looking at a specific, I believe it's an SSRI, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because um, I'm <laughs> going to butcher the name. But um, but looking at at that as a potential treatment option for long COVID, and I was wondering if you could kind of speak on what we know as far as you know uh, what changes might be taking place in the brain and why so many people are reporting depression as one of the main symptoms of long COVID. Absolutely. And uh, this has got incredible history to it with respect to the background of all of this. Going back 100 years ago, frankly, more than 100 years ago, but the contemporary history begins circa early 1900s. In that time, it was observed in asylums across the United States of America that many people who had uh, been in hospital with mental illness were there because there was something wrong with their immune system. And in those days, which was interesting in the early 1900s, it was not uncommon for people to be in what was called asylums because they had sexually transmitted diseases like syphilis and herpes that had affected the brain. And the clinicians that worked in these asylums wrote profusively about how there must be something about the immune system that may be causing mental illness. And it was interesting because that inspired the whole idea that maybe we could target the immune system as a treatment for mental illness. Now, medicine, like everything else in life, is in an effort to try and make the complex simple. And most listeners would understand that mental illness is because of a chemical imbalance in your brain, and we give you these chemistries to fix the chemical imbalance. Well, that makes for a tidy, neat, and so uh, what I would call a bumper sticker slogan. It's not really quite how it works. Um, there are, in fact, many different chemistries that are relevant to brain function and brain disease, and many different chemistries that we can potentially target with uh, our therapeutics. 
inflammation is one of those chemistries. And we now know that for some people, not all, but for some, disturbance in the immune inflammatory system may be causing their depression. And this may explain some of the symptoms so commonly observed, like fatigue and lack of energy, amotivation, lack of really any joy, sort of a sense of just lassitude. And these symptoms are not unique to depression. Everyone's had it during the common cold, and many now have it during long COVID. So long COVID is a complex, poorly understood, inexact phenomenon that involves now over 200 symptoms, according to the World Health Organization, 10 to 30% of people are left with long COVID after the acute infection. And it's debilitating. People are very impaired. In fact, in the United States, on the conservative end, 1 million on the higher end, two to four million Americans are off work because of long COVID. And the most debilitating of the over 200 symptoms is brain fog and fatigue. And because there's a consensus that A, we don't entirely know what's causing this, but the immune dysregulation is probably playing some kind of role, that if we had a treatment that could help the immune system in some of these symptoms, then heck, we might have a possible solution. So the idea came into my head, like many ideas, I was just kind of thinking to myself one night, what can we do to help these people? And I've been studying brain fog and cognitive impairment and problems with immunity and the brain for a long time. So we decided there was a treatment we wanted to explore that was already, in fact, marketed in over 40, 50, 60 countries around the world as an antidepressant. But the antidepressant name, that nomenclature, it doesn't do justice to what it actually does. It actually is a drug that modulates the immune system and it resets brain cognition performance and also boost motivation. We thought this was actually a perfect candidate to evaluate in people with long COVID, wherein it's helping their cognition, reducing brain fog, giving them a sense of motivation, reducing fatigue, and then also acting as an, as an anti-inflammatory drug. So that had all the check boxes for me. That study's just wrapped up with respect to its uh, recruitment. We're gonna read out the results in February. And I do hope this will be the world's first scalable uh, treatment for long COVID. We'll see what the results show, but I hope it's a solution because this has been a terrible problem. And I got involved in it, again, because of my interest in uh, cognitive function and aspects around reward in the immune system. So we think we might have a solution here for patients. My fingers are crossed that, it, that it's going to help. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing, and and it's an interesting point you bring up about you know the the class of medication that it's in doesn't necessarily do it justice in terms of just trying to understand its effects in in the serotonin system. And I know that that different uh, SSRI medications have been uh, found to like enhance neuroplasticity, boost BDNF. Um, so some people hypothesizing that that might be a big way in which they're working. You are, is this something that, that we commonly see in, in psychiatry and, and understanding like mood disorders in terms of medications and, and kind of having vastly kind of different effects and in the way in which they're actually helping patients? Yeah, I think there's increasing appreciation of this. And um, in the world of, of medicine and the world of pharmacology, I mean, I'm a pharmacologist, I'm a psychiatrist. Um, we, we like the word repurposing to something sort of not just, uh, uh, I think, convenient, but it has a certain kind of uh, um, appeal, I think. But we repurpose medications. Um, and this is, look, I think this is commonly known. I think, look, one of the most familiar medications around the world is aspirin. And aspirin has at least a half a dozen purposes. It's used for a headache, a fever, to thin your blood, to you know reduce pain, and so on and so on. So it's common for us to use medications for different purposes. And um, the names of medications, frankly, are a consequence in part of how they're marketed, but also in part how regulatory bodies approve them. And I think there's a consensus in psychiatry at the very least that the naming system, because names do matter, that the naming system is grotesquely outdated. And um, for example, in the United States, uh, about 13 to 15% of people in the United States annually are prescribed an antidepressant, but most are not taking it for depression. They're taking it for half a dozen reasons. So um, we, in fact, uh, are increasingly interested in changing this, what we call a nomenclature or naming system. 
And I think that, I frankly think in some ways it's contributed to some of the stigma of the medications, to be perfectly frank with you. I think that there are names that are less stigmatizing and much more accurate scientifically. Uh, so they're not even accurate scientifically, some of these names. But I think more germane to this question is that these medications, the psychiatric medications, most people in your listener sort of universe would be familiar with the fact that, oh, an antidepressant is for depression or an antipsychotic is for schizophrenia, uh, lithium is for bipolar disorder. The, you know, this is sort of in the common jargon that's out there. And, and that's not entirely untrue, but that's not entirely accurate either. And, and, and the reality is these medications have effects on many different systems. A lot of people come to me and they'll say, hey, Dr. McIntyre, you know, I'm taking this medication. How's my serotonin? And I know where they're coming from. That's sort of the, the zeitgeist and that's how we talk and so on. But the medications have so many different effects on, the, on other systems like the immune system. Here, here's, here's a great example. So let's say you're someone who in fact has hepatitis C, okay? Hepatitis C is a not uncommon infection still that's out there. Um, and you go to the care team and, and, you, and you receive treatment. Now, one of the treatments we like to give people for hepatitis C is a drug called interferon. And interferon is a very effective, very serious drug, but it's a very serious uh, problem, hepatitis C. So that's how it's treated. And what's interesting is that here's a pop quiz for you. What's the most common depression-causing drug around the world? Which drug causes depression more than any drug on planet Earth? It's called interferon. About 30 to 50% of people who take it for hepatitis C really feel kind of in a funk. They're really down. They feel really despondent, dark, melancholic. And what's interesting, that's interesting in of itself. It just indirectly goes what we talked about earlier, that here's this inflammation-type protein called interferon that can make you quite depressed. But, but the point I'm getting at is, is that many people will come to us and say, hey, look, I was reading on this drug. It causes depression. Can I prophylactically take an antidepressant? And many people do. It cuts the risk of depression in half. Um, and that is, it, in, in our world of medicine and science, that gives us indirect evidence supporting this thesis that these antidepressants don't just dance with serotonin. They are, they're, they're promiscuous. They actually dance with other people at the ball. And so inflammation is something else. And they tend to reduce inflammation. We also conjecture, and it's conjecture, but we've got reasons to, to think this way, that the benefits antidepressants have in other conditions might also be because of this favorable influence on inflammation. For example, we know people who have depression in heart disease or depression in diabetes or depression in cerebrovascular or stroke-like diseases, um, just to name a few, I can keep going, but to name a few, when they take the antidepressant for their depression, there's a halo effect on those other conditions. There's a benefit on those other conditions. And uh, that's not only the medication. There's other factors that academics like to deconstruct because academics like to make things enormously complicated. Uh, but the gist of it is, is that you're getting a halo effect. And um, so we've been interested because we've been trying to figure out can we take medicines that are anti-inflammatory and repurpose them? So ketamine we talked about earlier, ketamine, everyone knows as an anesthetic. It was approved back in, you know, 1970 by FDA as an anesthetic. And, and, and it's been around for 52, 53 years. It's also an antidepressant. It's also an analgesic, which is known as a pain reliever. And it also has the other A called anti-inflammatory. It reduces in, uh, immune uh, system dysregulation. It's why in part, it's, it's in part why it's so popular in anesthesia is because if you have a surgical procedure and the surgeon opens you up, your body's obviously going to have a reaction to that. And we don't want too much of an immune reaction because that could lead to problems. And they like to use ketamine because it, it sort of reduces the exaggerated immune response. And so uh, this has inspired a question that's been posed to me for a long time. Would there be a role for ketamine in treating long COVID? And I think that's a testable hypothesis, uh, a very coherent and viable testable hypothesis indeed. And, and definitely, I'm glad we're on the subject of ketamine now, um, it's where I wanted to get to. So um, when when we look at kind of the state of ketamine treatment right now, you know, there's there's centers that do like IV and IM treatments, then there's the at home, like lozenges, uh, or nasal sprays, what, 
what in in terms of looking at the research that's out there what are you seeing that's are all of these different um ways of uh delivering ketamine equally effective are there some that may be superior to others like what's your what's your take on that yeah that's really an important question and timely given what's happening uh in the ecosystem of ketamine and depression you're right you summarized it very nicely i mean we have and for again your listener um, world, we have different uh, formulations, we have different routes of delivery, and also different models of care. The most familiar model, of course, is a brick and mortar clinic, where someone would go to the clinic and see their clinician and receive treatment. Uh, a less familiar but increasingly popular model accelerated by the pandemic is at home care. This is look, let's look at these separately. So last year, we published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, which is the journal of the American and Psychiatric Association guidelines for how ketamine should be implemented. And in these guidelines, and I had about 30 or so colleagues uh, join me in this initiative that I, I wanted to lead because I thought this was absolutely needed. We have guardrails. I was really wanting to provide for the, the profession a synthesis of what are the formulations that are most proven, what type of personnel and uh, scope of practice competencies should the staff have? What should the infrastructure look like? What are the protocols? How should patients be monitored? What's the safety here? And so, so it's a, it was a somewhat uh, ambitious project. We got it done. Um, and in short, to answer your question, the intravenous delivery and the intranasal delivery, there's a, there's a proprietary formulation called esketamine. Those are the two most studied and unequivocally demonstrated efficacy formulations, full stop. In the form of, uh, the form of intranasal esketamine has not only data in the short term, but has data now out to three to four years of repeat exposure. For IV ketamine, most of that literature is in the short term, say a month or two. So taken together, the IV and the intranasal are unequivocally the most proven with the highest quantity and quality of data with the intranasal having three to four years of you know, uh, runway of additional data. So that's good for safety and tolerability. It's to color that in. Now, oral formulations or what we call sublingual under the tongue, those are slightly different. Oral, you swallow. Sublingual, you dissolve it in your mouth. Or other formulations like subcutaneous or intramuscular, there's even transdermal. Other formulations have been looked at in our in our uh, in different stages of development. And if I was to rank order it, what I would say is, as I said, IV and intranasal are clearly the most established. Um, oral and sublingual are at more of a second tier with respect to the quantity and quality of data which means it's got a tier, it's not zero tier, it's got some data, but less. And the issue with the oral and sublingual is trying to really figure out the what we call the kinetics, because when you swallow or absorb something in your mouth, the availability of that drug in your blood is a little less predictable than if you take it in your nose or through the IV. The subcutaneous and the IM are still very much a work in progress. I'm gonna put them to about a tier three or tier C at this point. Um, so there's still a work in progress. On the issue of at-home delivery, medicine is certainly changing. The future of medicine is not Kmart stores uh, and Kmart superstores. The future of medicine is Amazon. That's a metaphor, obviously. Insofar as the future of medicine is medicine going to the patient, not the other way around. And we now have the technology, uh, and everyone knows this now through COVID, uh, wherein many types of serious chronic diseases can be managed at home. Now, I often make the case that medicine should be going to the home in some cases, but shows it the best practices. And it, quite frankly, it makes me uh, very uncomfortable with some of the things I'm hearing about. I'll just focus on ketamine, where there are vendors that are sending medications to people's homes but there's no really ongoing surveillance of its administration. There's no ongoing surveillance of uh, the safety, the overall effect, good and bad, et cetera, et cetera. I think everybody agrees that we need better access, greater scalability, and better affordability of medicine. Everyone agrees on that. And we know that only a small proportion of people with mental illness actually have access to the treatments. We need access to treatment. 
but we also don't want to forfeit or compromise best practices. I do think there's a way to actually have your cake and eat it too, where you can have access and best practices. And I know many people are getting good palliative care at home. I know people personally who are getting care for severe liver and, and renal disease and dialysis at home. There's things that we can do. And frankly, patients are very satisfied with taking treatments at home and it can be very cost effective. But I think that um, um, there's two ways to do things, the right way and the wrong way. And the right way is, is that there are models that are being now put together. We're part of this where we're gonna put together care models and patient journey models where people can receive in some cases, the treatment at home. So it doesn't mean we're not doing clinics anymore, but it's not just medicine with the patient, it's best practices with the patient. So I would say it's a work in progress, but I am very concerned about some of the uh, things I'm hearing about uh, across the, the US landscape, especially with um, uh, providing these treatments with an aim to provide access, but, but there's, a, there's a forfeiture, if you will, of, of the quality and the care. Got it, got it. Now talking about, you know, anilketamine is not considered a, a classic psychedelic, but it's generally right. lumped in with that, that uh, psychedelic therapy movement. Um, and one of the big things when, when it comes to uh, psychedelic therapy is the role of you know a therapist or coach talking about psychedelic assisted therapy right, and right. i wanted to hear kind of my question for you is from what we know with in the research yeah. how much is you know maybe if we talk specifically say say with ketamine because we already talked about there's there's specific tangible you know uh, uh effects that ketamine's having on the immune system on different neurotransmission yeah. um but then there's also, especially, you know, more so with like the intravenous route where someone's having this like full-blown, you know, psychedelic experience, how much is, how much when, when patients are benefiting and getting better, uh, mm. how much is, do you think is from just the, the chemical changes that are taking place in a person's brain and body, you know, mm -hmm. strictly drug effects versus kind of the psychological experience of you know, the, the actual psychedelic? This is such a critical question on so many levels. Um, and first, it, it, it has historical significance, what you're bringing up, in the sense that there has been going way back, frankly, hundreds, if not thousands of years, used by indigenous groups and so on, a belief system that the aspect of the psychedelic trip is critical to its... Um, it's, it's benefit to the person taking it. And that's been around for quite some time. There's also academic scientific parts to this insofar as what is the brain areas responsible for this? What's the biology of this? And if it is critical for the therapeutic, therapeutic to work, then we need to make sure that future psychedelics hold on to that effect. Thirdly, it also has implications for safety and monitoring in the sense that if someone's gonna have a trip, they probably need to be monitored. And if it's, if, it's, if, it's, if it's built in, so to speak, that it has to happen, that has implications for what we call implementation science. A couple of points around this. I think first we need to start off with a little bit of um, humility. It still remains a known unknown, whether or not, to use a little Donald Rumsfeld language, it remains a known unknown whether the psychedelic trip is essential for the drug to work in the case of ketamine, or sorry, in the case of psilocybin. We, we just don't know that. That is a testable hypothesis. That is not proven. It is a testable hypothesis, period. Now, I recall when we first started doing work with ketamine quite some time ago, there was a belief system in the world of ketamine and depression that you needed to dissociate for ketamine to actually work. And the theory was similar to psychedelics and having a trip that you would have through the dissociation or with psilocybin, the trip, the opportunity to access in a latent way material that was previously uh, uh, manifest way in material that was actually previously latent. So a psychedelic means mind manifesting. So you're able to manifest what was latent, you know, what was latent. In other words, you're able to access what's below the surface, and it has a certain kind of explanatory appeal and a certain kind of explanatory clarity to it 
and a certain kind of almost face validity to it. It makes sense. We we there's 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 aspects of our consciousness. There's aspects of our contemplation, and when you alter the circuitry of the brain, that would give you what would have been heretofore an a unique way to access crevices of your brain that you don't usually access. So it makes perfect sense. But it turned out in the case of ketamine that it's not true. It turns out that dissociation has nothing to do with the benefit of the medication. And it's not that it was shown that it wasn't needed. It was actually proven to be false. It was proven to be false. So it wasn't that it wasn't proven to be true. It was proven to be false. So we don't need it. Um, that's not to say, that's not to say that people who take ketamine for depression don't benefit by seeing a therapist. That's, that's, that's a different conversation. Any more than someone who has broken their leg, they see the orthopedic people to get their leg put back together. They see, they see the physiotherapist to get, their, to get ambulating again. It's the same thing. So, 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 so that's, those are, that's a different issue. With psychedelics, it is a testable hypothesis. And uh, we still don't know whether or not it is essential, despite the fact that I recognize the history, the face validity to it, the explanatory appeal, but it might be, it might be essential. And I think that in science, what I've learned, and I don't pretend to have any anything remotely of the truth, <laughs> uh, but all I'm saying is, is that I have learned the good way and the bad way uh, that you've got to be open-minded about these things. And it's not just academic because Currently, the way psilocybin is administered, you need two therapists in the room with you for, say, at least four up to six hours across multiple treatments. And my view is, if that's what's needed, that's what's needed. But that's a problem because payers are not going to pay for that. People cannot afford that. Right now, this, the, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration is projecting that in two more years here in the United States, we're going to have 10 million less mental health providers than we need. 10 million. How can we dedicate that much resource to one patient when we have 10 million shy? So we don't have the resources and we don't have the reimbursement model. Therefore, that's kind of dead on arrival, quite frankly. So we need to have treatments that are not just innovative, treatments that help people and can sustain the benefit, work, long, uh, work rapidly, work longer but treatment that people can access in a scalable, affordable way. And so this needs to be sussed out. We need to figure out, is it that we need the psychedelic trip or we don't? And right now it's a testable hypothesis. And if we don't need it, that's important to know. And that then would say that that should guide future discovery of drugs. And it has tremendous positive implications for what would be required for the safe, deft, and appropriate application in real world, because we don't need it, you don't need the same degree of oversight. Again, to be clear, we're talking about the trip essential. I'm not saying that people who uh, don't need psychotherapy, they probably need psychotherapy. We're talking about that's a different issue, right? And so this is a very critical point. It's not just academic, it has cost implications, scale, theoretical, there's a lot to this. And we've got to get this right. And we don't do any service by coming at this with an ideology. You have to come at this as much as you can agnostically and just go where the data take you. And I think that's what we have to do. But for now, it's a testable hypothesis. So as we see, you know, ket uh, not ketamine, ketamine already being uh, legal for, for medical use in, in the moment, um, but as we see psilocybin and MDMA become available um, in, in the coming years, you know, from what we know now about maybe not being entirely sure how much of a role the actual um, therapy component is playing um, during the psychedelic session. Like, what do you see as as the ideal model for, uh, you know, for delivering these uh, these psychedelic medications that that do show, uh, you know, tremendous efficacy for for things like PTSD, major depression? Yeah. Absolutely. So there's a there, there's really three scenarios that I see that are um, actionable, near term, and believable. It's easier to believe what's believable. I think that if it's the case that you need this type of uh, experience 
and you need to have an integrated therapy in the moment, then I would say, is there the possibility that we could give a psychedelic that can work and have a trip that's much shorter in its duration? And this is the promise of some of the some of the other tryptamines and other psychedelics that may be shorter than psilocybin. And so if in fact we could say that the intervention only requires an hour rather than four to six hours, that's clearly gonna help on the scale, the cost, the affordability, that kind of thing. The second way to do it is simply to democratize this. Many people uh, would, would already be familiar with this model where rather than having two therapists with one patient, maybe we can have a group session where in fact it could be groupified for lack of a better word, in other words, because the integration doesn't necessarily, if it's proven to be necessary, it may not need to be on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Group therapy is a very effective way of doing things and obviously very cost-effective and gives more scale. And then, then it goes back to the third thing that I mentioned. And the third part is around whether or not there's ways that we can bring in some of the technology. In other words, um, look, People need to be monitored, et cetera. That's not negotiable. But is there ways that part of this can be maybe done through technology? We know that internet-based psychotherapy is highly, highly satisfactory to people. They like it. They do well on it. The evidence supports it. I don't think we've really explored the technology piece. And maybe there's ways that we can kind of um, uh, facilitate our bandwidth by having more technology delivering some of the psychotherapy. And then again, and I land on this last point. So uh, as, a, as another way forward, that being maybe future psychedelics don't need to be psychedelic. Maybe they can be without the trip, but that's, that's what we talked about earlier. But if the trip is necessary, then I think we need to figure out, can the trip be shorter in duration? Can we have more group rather than one-on-one? -on -one? And thirdly, is there a mechanism to bring in the technology? People might say, well, uh-uh. You got to see the patient in person. I think you need to have a, someone watching the patient for safety. But I'm talking about psychotherapy. And look, if you would have had this, we would have had this conversation 10 years ago. I would have said most clinicians would not accept psychotherapy through the internet. But that's that's changed. COVID changed that game overnight. And now uh, the outcomes through the internet are as good as in person. The, 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 the most importantly, the patient rates it as equal with respect to how they think it helps them and their uh, satisfaction. It's cost effective and it's scalable. So I think we need to think about those um, opportunities as well. Awesome. Yeah, it, it definitely will be interesting to see how that that those different things pan out. Mm -hmm. In terms of, uh, say, you know, new chemical entities, uh, different drugs that, um, that you've become aware of, uh, you know, that might have uh, to share, you know, properties with some of the uh, psychedelics, or just in general, um, in terms of, uh, you know, the mental health uh, treatment landscape, I guess, particularly uh, pertaining to like depression. Uh, are there any that um, besides the the common ones we keep hearing about, like ketamine and psilocybin, uh, and MDMA, any others that you think are going to be particularly important um, in, in terms of the future of, of mental health care treatment? It, uh, there are. In fact, this is truly a time like no other. And I say that without any kind of hyperbole. This is truly unique time. The psychedelics are not new kids on the block. These are old kids on the block that were finally giving their their their, their chance to really prove their mettle. Um, but at the same time, there's other assets in this area that are in what we call stage three or phase three development, which means in the final stages. Uh, of development in depression that are no less interesting. Um, drugs like zoranolone, which is a, uh, a new type of drug for depression that if it's proven to be effective and safe, we'll know next year uh, from the FDA, um, will be an antidepressant you just take for a couple of weeks as you need it. You take it PRN as you need it. This is something very different. Usually people are told to take these medications for months and years. So can you imagine you just take a pill as you need it to get your mood back up again? Uh, secondly, there's another type of drug which is related to methadone, but very different. Methadone is a drug people know for opioid use disorder, but it's um, one of its offspring is called S-methadone, which looks like it could be a very rapid acting agent that's like ketamine, but doesn't have any opioid-like effects. It, it, it's, a, it's a very new chemical entity. 
We also have some other agents that are in development that are uh, targeting the brain in terms of how it manufactures chemistries in ways that are very different. And again, works very, very rapidly. So I think what's happened is we've kind of, the zeitgeist has changed, not just in terms of the putative or the alleged mechanisms, but also the, the expectation as to when they would work. When I started in this business, um, people were told to wait six weeks to 12 weeks for antidepressants to work. I always thought that was bizarre, um, but that was what we had to accept. We don't need to accept that anymore. In fact, now we have drugs that can work like ketamine within hours. Psilocybin seems to work very quickly. Hopefully it gets across the finish line, we'll see. Um, and some of the other medications that I enumerated, these work within hours or a day max or a couple of days. So I think that the days are really coming to an end where people have to sit in misery for six to 12 weeks. People are not gonna accept that. I wouldn't accept that. And so this is a, a changing, changing time. And this was made possible by the science and made possible by these very new therapeutics. Awesome. Last question I, I wanted to ask you, uh, Dr. McIntyre, uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on microdosing, like taking small amounts of, of some of these different psychedelic compounds? I know there's been a lot of critique in terms of them not having uh, you know, much literature to back up these, these right. claims, it being a lot of like anecdotal reports of right. people using small amounts of psilocybin or LSD, um, but saying that this these are things that really tremendously improve things like depression and uh, and um, energy levels, stuff like that. So, what is what are what are your thoughts on microdosing? Do you think it's going to be here to stay, or is it something that the research doesn't really bear out? Well, I think it could be any of the above or none of the above. I think at this point we are in a, a not 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 a known unknown, but an unknown unknown, <laughs> in the sense that this has not been given sufficient study. Um, what I would say is today, what we would have to conclude agnostically and just simply being agnostic, we don't have enough evidence to say that this works, and we don't have enough evidence to say it's safe. Now, I've met many, many people who use uh, microdosing. And they swear by it on their creativity, on their sense of joie de vivre, on their sense of, uh, you know, their own sense of engagement with themselves. And I'm not, uh, I'm not disputing that. I mean, that's that's their experience. That's not open to dispute. All I'm saying is, is that when you have one or one hundred or one thousand or ten thousand testimonials, that's not a randomized controlled trial. And a randomized controlled trial. Um, does something very important. It brings kind of a uh, level playing field wherein we're able to suss out whether the benefit is entirely accounted for by the drug or to what extent is this simply based on what we call expectancy. People tend to take microdosing because they think it works. And the more you think something works, the more you convince yourself it works. That doesn't mean it doesn't work, but part of that is just your own expectation. And when we look at what's there now, microdosing has not proven to be an effective intervention over a placebo. But I would say, rather than throwing that baby out with the bathwater and saying it's all rubbish, I don't say that. I would say it hasn't been given its day yet, and it has to be studied. There's examples in other areas of medicine where very low doses can have benefits. And I think it's a testable hypothesis. I still believe that. But I don't believe it's proven to be work, just work despite the thousands of testimonials that are out there that does not equal a randomized controlled trial. So in short, it's not been given its day, I think, with respect to a large randomized controlled trial. And until that's done, I would say we're really not going to know. And I don't encourage people to do it. What they do is their business... I want to finish on one point. People often say to me, oh, they say, hey, Roger, you know, psychedelics have no side effects. I say, that's not true. Placebo has side effects. Up to about 65% of people get a side effect on a placebo, okay? There's lots of side effects on everything. So we should not be, I think, um, cavalier about side effects and safety concerns. Uh, my view is anything that can help you can hurt you. And that's the guiding principle of pharmacology. And so I would not just uh, uh, come at this with a kind of a benign attitude. I think it's actually something that's serious. So I would not be doing it. 
until we have more data. Understood. Well, Dr. McIntyre, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this discussion with you. And for the listeners who also have, where would you um, direct them to if they want to connect with you, find out more about Braxia, um, any any of the other uh, stuff in, in depression research, like what sort of resources would you provide for them? Absolutely. They can certainly go to our website uh, at Braxia Scientific, easy to find, it's, it's highly optimized, and they can reach out to me. Um, they can certainly reach out to me at any point in time. Uh, you know, at uh, uh, Roger McIntyre at BraxiaScientific.com. You can reach out anytime and we could have this discussion. But thanks for having me. It's been an enjoyable discussion. Awesome. Of, of course. All right. Well, um, the episode will be posted on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and most of the other major audio streaming platforms for those of you who uh, prefer to listen to the audio version. And then also the uh, full videos will be on YouTube at our channel, NeuroFlex. That's N-U-R-O-F-L-E-X. Uh, Dr. McIntyre, again, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a real pleasure. Great to be with you. Thanks for covering the topic.